from the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford. This is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here's your host, Connie Coots. Thank you, Jesse. Hi, everyone. It is Connie Coots, and you are listening to the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. It's April. It's season one. It's episode 17, which means Bahia El Shabazz is back in the Shumway, here to share the second trimester from her essay, The Parts. Hi, Bahia. Hi, Connie. How are you? I am good. How are you? I'm excited to share this story, to listen to this story, because the second trimester, most people think it's easy or fun. Mm-hmm. A little bit about that. What do you think? Hmm. I do think it's physically easier, yes. But? Um, emotionally, maybe not so much, because you're getting closer to the end, and so... I don't know. Well, let's listen to your second trimester. Okay, thanks. Here we go. July. She's the size of an onion, and her soft, rubbery cartilage skeleton is beginning to harden into bone. Her eyelashes are filling in fast, and also her hair, if she'll have any. I really miss my Chicago. It aches to think about it too hard, but I can't stop. I was never so in love with it when I was there. But the dark quiet here is unsettling. I'm used to sirens every now and then, high-pitched screams sometimes, drunks coming home, bass rattling the dorm windows and the train clipping by. A thousand lights like eyes watching out, their contrasting colors humming like a mom over you as you sleep. And I miss the jogging people, the bikers sliding through the chaos like snakes, hot peppers on hot dogs and grabbing an early morning hot chocolate on the way to class when it's cold. Chicagoans always know where they are going and how to maneuver through traffic you think is impossible. Looking in from the outside, knowing I may never find my way back there, I see the city as sacred. I can barely recall that sewer smell that used to hit out of nowhere. Chicago only smells like fudge and caramel corn and thick pizza. There's no sickos, no armless men asking for change. There are no dark alleys. It only shimmers and shines. I threw up twice, back in my dorm room. Once a chicken sandwich I'd walked a mile for. Once a cafeteria salad that I finished just before spewing it as green soup right back into the bowl. When my stomach started to wave during class, I'd slip out and run to the vending machine for the saving salt of pretzels. Nobody knew what was going on. But here, showing and steadily growing, everyone does. I run into my ex at a gas station. By now, all I can fit are large wife beaters and stretchy pants. My friend John, an ass expert, says mine is getting past a sexy size. He touches my stomach so gently. We had a baby, but it never rounded my tummy, not even a little. He looks really, really good. He has the best skin, like polished bronze. He has this smile. I stopped by his house back in May, only for five minutes. We didn't even hug. We went to his room where a picture of a blonde-haired black girl had taken my place in the mirror frame. I asked if he still had pictures of me. He said yes, but when I challenged him to, he couldn't find them. We sat on his bed, and there was almost nothing left 
of that feeling that not long ago made me feel so insane at the thought of him not loving me. Now, standing against the warm wind, he tells me, I knew you was pregnant that day when I saw you. Yeah, right, I say. How? I just did, he sighs, standing straight, backing up, going behind his wall again. I just have feelings about you sometimes. August, the morning of truth, an 8.30 appointment to find out who exactly is in me, the size of a pomegranate. Eyelids and eyebrows now in their proper places, genitals fully formed. My mom comes, and Nikki, and Jenny, and their boyfriends. The cubicle-sized room isn't made for this many. The technician says, you came with an entourage, girl which makes me conscious that it must look like I tried to fill it with extra people to make up for a missing one. She never asks which one is the dad, thank God, or addresses either Moose or Al as if either of them are him. She can just tell. I hate that she might feel sorry for me, but whatever. I smile and say, yeah, well, everyone's excited to see if it's a boy or girl. She says, can't always tell for sure, but let's see if we have any luck today. I didn't know that sometimes you aren't able to find out, and I don't think I could handle it. I just need to know as much as possible so I can plan everything. The months ahead, the years and decades. I can't feel confident until I fully visualize us. I need to have some kind of control. She squirts cold blue gel on the slope of the mountain and presses the thingy to it. We instantly hear a whoosh whooshing and get the first image of feet. The crowd gets tighter around me. She snaps pictures, types labels, measures. There's a spine, nice and connected. There's the head, the working brain, a profile, a straight-on face shot where we see eye and nose sockets, little skeleton. She lingers on each part, pointing out details, everyone leaning over me and each other to see. I appreciate it, but I just want her to get on with it. Skip to the end. Okay, so you're sure you want to know, right? Her smirk tells me that she already sees. I sit up on my elbows and nod. I try to see what she does. Should I tell you? She teases. Oh my God, it's killing me, Jenny whines. I'm holding my breath. It's a... A... Jenny's squealing quietly on my mom's shoulder, getting louder by the second like tea. A boy! The room releases a breath. I don't want to cry, but if I don't get out of here quickly, it's coming. Aw, a boy, congrats. I nod and keep my mouth firmly shut so that nothing I don't want to will spill out. The technician points a little white penis on the black screen, very clear. She types boy next to it. She prints his pictures and hands them to me warm. She wipes the jelly off, helps me sit up, congratulates me again, and leaves the room. So there it is. He's all there, all healthy, all boy. So, are you happy? My mom asks on the way out. I've never told anyone all my plans for me and my mini-me, or that I preferred a girl at all. The way I'm thinking, there's little to no hope 
of me having a daughter now ever. It's easier, healthier for me to think this way, to keep me sane and functioning. I will just let her go, turn all of my thoughts away from dolls and dress up. Yep, I say, I'm happy. I don't know why I don't, didn't, want a boy. I mean, I don't like them at the moment, but logically, I know they're human and okay. Some are great even. I know women can be just as terrible, but right now it doesn't feel like it because I am one and so are Nikki and Jenny and my mom, and that pretty much sums up the people I can currently stand. I'm afraid of who he'll be the many ways he might inflict pain if I raise him in any way wrong, with his words, with his lack of them, with too much desire or not enough, with his penis or his tongue or his hands. They were all babies, all sweet once, the ones who've crushed me, invisible looming molesters who dominated my childhood nightmares, the mysterious man who kidnapped the son of family friends at gunpoint when we were kids and never returned him. My great-grandpa, before he realized he was a son of slaves, that even though he was free, he was destined to be one. Before he used his huge hands to pull up cotton and count up money that never equaled enough and beat my grandmother, those hands must have been sucked for comfort, pushed a toy truck, held tight to his mom. He did amazing things with those hands, too. Hired for the broken things people couldn't fix themselves. He took apart a radio and put it all back together again, then built one from scratch with things he scraped up. He didn't go to school past the sixth grade. He just figured it out, one part at a time. September. If he was accidentally born now, He'd be about a pound and a half. With barely any fat to stretch his wrinkled skin smooth and billowy, he'd have no leg clouds, but there'd be a possibility they could save him. So far, there have been no signs of an early exit. Sitting on Nikki's bed, watching the real world, I suddenly feel his foot, the hard, knobby heel of it. Or maybe his bald, bony fist, running a path up and down my side. Usually it's a quick jab here, then there, hard for anyone other than me to catch a good, hearty feel. Nikki's never felt him. Here, here, I grab her hand and press it on the right spot. She's quiet for a second, smiling. That's so weird, so wow, she breathes, and it is. Now, when I reread the slave narratives that my long-lost teacher and that far-off black history class gave me, they make me tremble. Especially the stories of broken mothers, babies ripped away, gushing wounds never closed. One mother was carrying her newborn on the chained walk from St. Louis to New Orleans. The baby wouldn't stop crying as the slave trader yelled to shut him up. Of course she couldn't stop to nurse or change him or whatever he needed, so he cried on. The trader grabbed him up by the ankle like a rabbit in a snare. I stopped breathing as I read this part. 
sure he was going to kill him right in front of his mama, who screamed even when he warned her not to. But instead, he walked up to a house, knocked on the door, and gave the baby to the woman who answered as a gift, then walked back to his train of people and made them move on. The mother begged and promised she'd keep him quiet and fell on her knees and had to be dragged by her wrists from the house that had inhaled him. In a way, I bet she wished he were just dead so she'd know it was over for him. She wouldn't spend every night into eternity awake wondering if he was hungry, if there was anyone at all to love him, if he was lying somewhere hard and cold with a bleeding back, if he'd always cry for her. Another mother killed her ninth baby, smothered him. She couldn't bear to love another, she said, knowing that any day, any moment, the master would come for him and sell him away. When I read about their sacrifices, I'm overwhelmed with satisfaction that I held on to this baby. I owe my ancestors my motherhood. How can I ever regret this, or yell at him, or want him to be a girl, or kick him out of my bed at night and make him sleep alone, or hold back kisses, or let him out of my sight? Bahia. Connie. I love this trimester. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it with us. Of course. May I ask you some questions? Yes, you may. Along with children, I also love Chicago. Mm-hmm. Turns out you do too. I do. I would love to hear about your relationship with Chicago now and then. Um, well, then um, I was a student, of course, living in the dorms. Um, I ended up going back two years after, well, less than two years after I had um, Nasir. And we lived there until he was six um, in different parts, first the north side, then the south side. Um, And now I pretty much go back to take my kids to museums and things like that. So I still love it. Um, Are you north girl or are you south side girl? (laughs) Hmm. Um, I lived in both, and I felt comfortable in both. Mm-hmm. Um, the north side, I lived in Rogers Park. Um, and when Asir was little, he went to the Waldorf School up there. And then we moved south, which was really far from that school. And so we ended up homeschooling him on the south, like off of South Shore Drive, mm-hmm. almost Indiana, like by the Skyway. Okay. Um, and we liked that neighborhood as well. We didn't intentionally leave because of the increase in violence, but it seemed to increase a lot after like the – months or even like but it's soon after we left okay um yeah what what did bring you to rockford um mostly because my husband traveled we weren't even married yet but um he travels a lot for work and the time we moved nasir was six or almost six no just turned six my next kid was two and i was pregnant with my third and living on the south side, my brother lived in Evanston at that time, and friends I had lived up in Evanston area too, which is almost an hour drive, so they didn't feel like they were really close. So I just felt kind of isolated there, and so I just, and Nasir used to beg, he used to sit in our window in Chicago and look at the Skyway and mm-hmm. cry because he wanted to be in Rockford, <laughs> because... <laughs> 
his grandparents were here and his best friends were here because you know, my friend's kids that lived in Rockford still were like his best friends. So um, we did, and Malik, my husband, loved Rockford. Mm-hmm. He loved the quietness of it. Mm-hmm. He, he grew up in Chicago. So we decided to move back. Okay. Do you ever see yourself moving back to Chicago? I wouldn't mind, except for we have so many kids now, and I, I can't imagine the price of a house you'd have to get to be comfortable in there, so probably not. What's your favorite city? Hmm. My favorite large city? Mm-hmm. Probably Chicago. If if I haven't been to all major cities, but I've been to New York several times, and... L.A. and Vegas. Um, and I mean, Chicago, I just feel more comfortable there because even when I was a kid, we would go in Chicago for different things. So it definitely feels more like home than any other big city. It's a wonderful city. It I want to say something that's coincidental. Mm-hmm. You went to Columbia College. Dan Libin, our last writer, mm-hmm. went there. Yes. You lived in Rogers Park. He and Molly McNett, uh-huh. his wife, who's going to be our June author, also oh, lived in Rogers nice. Park. Nice. So it's just kind of interesting. It is. Um, and that kind of... Let's me think about friends and friendships and things like that, which makes mm-hmm. me want to ask you about Jenny and Nikki. Yeah, Talk Jenny. About your friendship young and now as a mature woman. Nikki what is one of and Jenny are both some of my best friends, two of my best friends. Um Nikki is the daughter of my parents' best friends. Mm-hmm. And so we've known each other since I'm a little older than her, so since she was born. Um and we've been friends, and we're since then, and we're still really good friends. Our kids are friends. And then Jenny, I met through Nikki actually, and they were good friends from Lathrop. They went to Lathrop together. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't. I met Jenny when we were both kids, but we didn't start hanging out as friends until we were teenagers. And then we were really close, and um, have, are still close. She lives in New York. She hasn't been in Rockford since she graduated high school. But um, yeah, they're still my best friends. What do you talk about now that you're mature women? Mostly kids because um, I have five and Nikki is pregnant with her fourth and Jenny is pregnant with her second. So kids, I think, is probably the main subject when we talk, our kids mm-hmm. and being married and all those, not boring things, but... Not boring. <laughs> I almost said boring. Not boring, but, you know, day-to-day things like that. Yeah, and gotcha. back then... When we were teenagers, especially, especially me and Jenny, we probably talked about boys mm-hmm. almost nonstop. That's cute. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned a boy being kidnapped by a mysterious man yeah. and not being returned. Can you tell us who that is? Or I mean, can you talk about that? That's such a terribly sad. Thing. Yeah, I, I can't say that I personally knew him, but um, Jacob Wetterling was. Um, the son of people that my parents knew and, and Nikki's parents knew. Um, so I I may have met him when I was really small and not remembered at a conference. But when that happened, our parents told us about it, mm-hmm. and we got together with um, a group of people in Rockford, and we had like a prayer circle. And it's just one of those things that, I mean, from then on, my mom was really weary about me <clears throat> walking down the street to mm-hmm. live by Joe's Dairyette on Montague Street. We used to walk down to get ice cream cones, and I remember her being nervous after that for me just walking a block away. So it definitely had an effect on me, and I just always wondered what happened to him and thought about him, and I know recently they did discover his remains. So, Well, I lived in Minnesota at the time, and I had no idea that story made it this far south Yeah, and that there was a connection inside your family 
and your faith community, which mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you about if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, could you tell, you said a prayer circle. What is your faith and do you enjoy it? Um, my faith is Baha'i. I was raised in it. Um, our prayer circle was probably mostly Baha'is, but Baha'i, you want me to talk about what it I don't know is what a prayer it? circle is. Oh, a prayer. It's just that we, I don't even know if they called it that. I remember when I was a kid, I thought, because we got in a circle. Because oh. we, just, <laughs> we just stood in a circle and said prayers. But I don't get it. <laughs> I'm so in, dumb. No, in Nikki's living room, and we had his picture up, and I just remember standing in a circle holding the hands of someone next to me. But that's not like a Baha'i thing that you have to do stand in a circle or anything. Okay, okay. But um, I just remember that we were doing that for whatever, standing in a circle and just saying prayers for his safe return and... Okay. Well, this reminds me, when I was a kid, Simon Peter Nelson killed his six kids and his dog. Mm-hmm. And this was a block away from where I lived. Mm-hmm. And it frightened me and yeah. intrigued me and it changed me and it made me less trusting and all that. So that mm-hmm. was a pivotal moment in my life yeah. that has completely changed how I parent and think of the world. Yeah. Was the Wetterling situation that for you? Yeah. I think it was. Even though, I, like I said, I don't can't say that I'm. we were really, really close to their family, but mm-hmm. just even knowing the details of what happened, how a masked man, you know, approached them with a gun, mm-hmm. and that, I mean, for my whole childhood, he was never found. And so that, that I mean, me and Nikki and our other friend Sarah were always weary of kidnappers and, and molesters. We mm-hmm. always were just kind of nervous about that. I'm not sure where we've got that from, but that made it like really real. And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, I think it's probably every mother's fear, but it's definitely a thing that I think about a lot, even yeah. though I know it's so rare to be but kidnapped by a stranger, but, but it's, it's real. real. Yeah, but it's real. Have your kids experienced a crime that changes the way they trust? Hmm. I don't think they have, mm-hmm. um, except that, I mean, they know about that. Yes. Um, and I have, I've heard them say to each other since like recently, one of my kids said the other, that he couldn't walk. Like we were all somewhere in public and she, my, I think it was my daughter told my six year old son, he couldn't walk like really like maybe a block away from us because there's of kidnappers. And mm-hmm. I realized it's probably because of me, t- of them knowing about that story. Um, so I had to tell her like, you don't have to be that, I mean, you have to be cautious, but you don't have to be so afraid that you can't, you know. Because it was like I could still see him. It wasn't, you know, she gets, my daughter especially, who's um, almost nine, gets very worried about that kind of thing, about safety. Mm-hmm. So I think that probably had an effect on them hearing that story. And then um, just probably in the news, um, they've seen things about police officers shooting black people. And yes. I think I've had talked to them about that. They've, you know, said things like, They've basically, I think, had, especially my younger ones, had in their head that um, almost the idea that if if a police officer sees you and you're black, they might shoot you. And so I had to talk about, about that. I'm so glad you brought this up because that is obviously not something I grew up with, being afraid of the police. Yeah. Um, your children are brown-skinned. Yeah. So they know there's a danger of them being hurt yeah. by the police. How has this conversation come up? Is this something you're comfortable talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's come up because, like I said, they've seen, especially my older ones, have seen things on social media about the different shootings. Um, I don't know if my younger ones understand. I, they don't understand as much as the older ones do. So they've probably heard little pieces of things, and then that's probably where they got this idea. But when my six-year-old was not even two, 
he was once, he was sitting in a car at a gas station and two police officers got out of a car and walked by our car and he said, those are bad guys. Those mm-hmm. are bad guys. And he kept repeating it. And I was like, no, no, no. Um, and I have no idea where that came from. He hadn't at that point heard anything that I know of. But it made me think about possibly the possibility of um, epigenetics and how you can be um, pass fears down to your children because yeah. I've always been afraid of police, even though my parents never told me to be afraid of the police. Mm-hmm. But I've always been afraid of them. And I know my father has had some incidents with being pulled, pulled over by the police. Mm-hmm. My grandfather on my father's side, the one I talked about in the story, mm-hmm. he had some mental health issues. And they're pretty sure he was killed. Well, they know he was killed by the police. He, <laughs> I didn't know this. Well, yeah, he was arrested a lot for he had mental issues, and I and he um, was arrested often for wandering around and maybe being a little incoherent. I think he also had a drinking problem, so he was arrested for something like that and died in jail. And they told his family that he had um, a heart attack, or no, that he had drowned himself in the toilet. But his head was in the toilet bowl. They told him that he did it to himself. Um, so, um, so yeah, I don't know if any of that gets passed down, but definitely I've always had a fear which I couldn't explain. Yes. And, um, I think my kids do too. Well, I completely understand. And I do believe in epigenetics Mm -hmm. and I do think that problems are more than just the moment that they exist in, you know, they're not 10 years old, they're 300 years or 3000 years old. Uh, I'm so sorry about your grandfather. I never met him, but (sighs) Yeah. Okay, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. <laughs> um, what would you like to say before we wrap up? What would you like to say about writing or family? What would? Ooh. It's all yours. The mic is yours. Oh, man. Um, what did you write the, today? Um, today I worked a little bit on the short fiction collection that I've been writing. Fat Father? Not Fat Father. That's the YA novel, mm-hmm. and that is the first draft is done. I'm, I'm still working on it, but um, short fiction, like it's 13 short stories I know but, it's, but fat father came from it yeah, you, okay. yes it came from a short story and i turned it into and this novel. collection is devoted to bad guys it's, yeah understand it's, it's them as human beings right it's devoted to unlikable characters mm-hmm. yes well let's wrap up this interview by uh, this is a teaching podcast mm-hmm. so and you're passionate about education yes you loved it for yourself you pass this on down to your children you talk about it with friends and family frequently yeah you wrote today you write characters that are not necessarily savory. Mm-hmm. Tell us why that's important for the world, why that's important as an educator. I think it's important because um, it's very easy to look at somebody, look at someone's behavior and think that they're a terrible person without really having to have empathy for them. And I think hopefully if you can read a story or, or a movie, watch a movie or whatever and, and see things from a character's perspective that you might think you wouldn't like and hopefully something about them is likable or they have a redeeming quality you can hopefully it can foster some empathy yes and i notice this in your writing all the time i can't wait for next week thanks me either we're going to go into the third trimester yes and talk a little bit more Uh, bahia el shabazz thank you so very much you're welcome thank you Bye. bye The Guilty Pleasures podcast is made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, Rockford Area Arts Council, and you, our listeners.
Remember to rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play. Email feedback to editor at rockfordwritersguild.org. Follow us on social media. We are on Facebook under Rockford Writers Guild and at Guildy Pleasures on Twitter and Instagram. This is your producer, Jesse Koontz. Thank you for listening. Now, go write. <laughs>